Hi, this is Aaron Weinacht with uh, New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, and that's a channel on the New Books Network. And I'm here today with Dr. John Davis, who's the author of a new book on cholera epidemics in Russia. So thanks for being with us today, John. Thanks for having me, Aaron. You bet. Uh, So can you start us off with a little biographical information, how you got interested in Russian history in general, maybe cholera specifically, where you went to school? who you studied with, things like that? Well, I I, um, I I was originally a police officer, and after a career doing police, I, I become interested in Russian history, uh, interestingly enough, just sort of on my own, reading books and uh, uh, watching documentaries and this sort of thing. And so I, I decided to, to become a teacher, went to Northern Kentucky University and, and got yet another degree, <laughs> this time in history. And uh, applied and was accepted at the University of Kentucky in, in the uh, graduate school program down there to work with Karen Patron. And uh, as you know, went to school down there from 2003 to right around 2011 and got my Ph.D. in Russian history, uh, also with European history and uh, environmental history. So I become interested in disease really uh, after along the way after my, my thesis topic petered out as a potential doctoral topic, I read Death in Hamburg by Richard Evans and became very fascinated with the idea of cholera uh, as, as a historical agent and decided right then and there that, that that's what I would do my dissertation on. So, uh, you know, some people uh, might find disease to be sort of an odd thing to be interested in, you know, but I guess that's that's probably true of, of any topic you get that deep into. Uh, so I was wondering, because I, I didn't really know when I started reading your book, uh, like, could you just explain what, what kind of disease is cholera? Like, what I was really wondering is, what's, that, what's it actually like to die from cholera? <laughs> That, that's that's a great idea, and that is part of the allure of cholera. Actually, is is how you die from it. It is a bacterial disease. Um, it's it's caught uh, through the the oral fecal route, and the bacteria is is known as the vibrio. It, it it or it used to be called the cholera commas. It actually looks like a comma under the microscope, but it it is a very deadly disease. And when it gets and it takes quite a bit of bacteria to to make you sick enough to die. But when you get a large dose of this stuff, it basically within about anywhere from two to eight hours, you could be dead. And it, and it starts sucking the, the water out of you and dehydrates you in massive form uh, from just about every angle that you can imagine that, that water can leave your body. And you, if you've ever had a cramp, you can imagine the, the, the cramping up of all your muscles at, at one time, uh, it was a very morbid way to die, and 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 a lot of, and, and it was a horrible, painful death. Uh, the eyes would sink back in the head. The body would turn blue, and it's known as the blue death, uh, cholera. But it, it was it was a terrible way to die, and there were millions of people that who died from this uh, over the course of the 19th century. Uh, well over two million Russians, and of course, it's just, the statistics were always low because. Uh, the, the, the medical authorities wanted to keep it that way, but it was a very painful death. And at times, even after the, the person was dead, uh, the body would move because of the muscular contractions in the body. So it was, it was a, a very eerie, scary thing. 
Well, it's like that that old uh, Irish drinking song, The Night Pat Murphy Died, where he sits up in the coffin afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> exactly right. And in fact, one one year they had, um, they took, you know, in Russia, of course, vodka is a big thing. And, and they had a toast over the, the body uh, and they didn't realize that their friend had drank from. And then uh, there were a couple more. Films, oh, no. So it, 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 was a, it was a very deadly wow. disease. Uh, you, you made a point in the book of talking about uh, cholera's origins down in and around India. And I thought maybe it might be helpful to the audience if you could do some background on where cholera is endemic to, so then to kind of set up the background for talking about Russia specifically. Absolutely, Aaron. And and, and this is one of the reasons that, that uh, Russia was so vulnerable to cholera was because of its location to the north of India. Uh, India is endemic, uh, uh, cholera is endemic in India primarily just because of the, the, the physi- physical layout. You have the largest, the tallest peaks in the world, uh, the, the Himalayas, and then you have these river valleys and, and streams running down off of the Himalayas, uh, capturing all types of bacteria along the way, running down into the Indus and the Ganges River Valley and down, and uh, especially the Ganges, which is considered the home of cholera, into the Bay of Bengal uh, in that area there, which and, and, and out into uh, the, the, the Bay. The bay. Uh, cholera, it, it's, it's really endemic to estuaries, places where rivers come together with the sea, with, where salt water and fresh water, so-called brackish water, come together. You have processes there, and uh, especially when weather-related events shake up these areas. It's also not that far from Indonesia, where you have most of the volcanoes, the, the really more massive volcanoes. The, I think the first three or four largest volcanoes in history were in the Sunda Arc right there of Indonesia. So th- this place is just a, a, a manufacturing um, uh, manufacturer's delight for cholera. It, it, it's, it's made for that. And, and so, th- so that's really why. And, and of course it attacks people um, who, who live and are vulnerable to, to high water. You have uh, disruption of the monsoon there due to weather related events and, and or or people who are uh, suffer from famine, as you know, they have 1.3 billion people there. I, I, I'm assuming they had a, probably a billion then. And if 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 you have the monsoon, if you have disruption in the monsoon, you have hunger, and then you have a lot of these people, and and uh, and then you have these torrential downpours where all this water comes off of Mount Everest. Uh, so this is going to be an area that is very uh, susceptible to disease. So, so what do the volcanoes have to do with it specifically? Well, the, the volcanoes are, 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 are thought to have a correlation with the El Nino, okay. uh, the, the teleconnection across the Pacific, which which starts it up. It, and and it's, the diff- it's partly the difference in the... Um, the, the, the heat, the heat or the, or the cold, but usually the, it's the El Nino and it's the heat uh, across the Pacific, which, you know, causes, causes reactions, a, the so-called butterfly effect where a, a, a butterfly flaps his wings on one side of the world and you have an incident on the other. But, and, and there's also a belief that there's a, like a salt conveyor underneath it. And, and, and so salt has something to do with it, but you have these, these volcanoes which shift the tides in, in the bay 
and uh, in in the estuaries, they they more or less uh, stir up the bottom sediments of the estuaries. Plus, you have temperature changes changes in in, in the saline uh, uh, solutions in in the uh, estuaries, which rattle up these these uh, cholera microbes. Or, or the, the actually they they sit there actually in a in a, an incomplete form and this sort of activates them and then you have a small uh, crustacean called copepods who are who bring these things they they are actually uh, able to uh, live in aerobic and anaerobic environments so they come up from these anaerobic environments to aerobic environments are eating eaten by larger crustaceans larger shellfish. And then in times of, of famine, who who is going to eat them but human beings? So this is how it's believed to, to uh, or one of the main ways it's believed to to start. Uh, and that is what the volcanoes do. They just sort of uh, get all these processes going. So you also, I, I, correct me if I, if I didn't read your book correctly, but um, I, I got the impression that the, the cholera bacteria actually mutates. And so like... Russian cholera is different than Indian cholera or German cholera was different than Russian cholera. Did I, did I get that right? Well, it's, it's, it's something like that. It's something like that, Aaron, because in Indonesia, the, the, the actually, uh, the Bay of Bengal is supposed to be in the home for V cholera 01, uh, with the so-called Cox Vibrio, the, the Vibrio that Robert Cox isolated, which was a very uh, strong Vibrio, a newer Vibrio, which was found uh, by the, by a fella in 1905, uh, the the El Tor Vibrio is actually believed to be uh, endemic in Indonesia, and and they and they spread out more. But this is a, a actually a weaker Vibrio, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily uh, less deadly. It, it could actually kill a lot of people because you have uh, it, it survives more because it's weaker. The, the it it kills less host, so it, it's more pervasive. Although it doesn't, you you we've not seen the El Tor epidemics in the West. They they generally go to Russia and places like that, and just have not penetrated Western Europe and and the Americas. Fortunately for Western Europe and the Americas, and that is still a danger today, very much. So that'd be kind of akin then to the difference between the bubonic and the pneumonic plague, where even though the pneumonic plague is deadlier it actually kills fewer people because it kills people so quickly is that is that a good enough analogy there uh, absolutely absolutely it's, uh, you know really it's evolution is what it is it's 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 the same species it's just evolved uh, into a state where it's going to survive where where the other species are not always active they they do live in these bays uh, but and and they can come back actually local conditions Including whether people have been eating or not, how you know the hunger of the people, the insides of the people determine how these these uh, microbes can can survive and, and can evolve and or, and how an epidemic can start. So it's, it it even has to do with epigenetics, where uh, uh, like epi- epigenetics being you know applied characteristics possibly over time where the Chinese have, have their ancestors starved and, and, and three generations become susceptible disease that, that is believed that's a current theory. And, um, I think it probably holds true certainly for India and, and China and maybe even for Russia. 
So something else that played quite an important uh, role in the book there was you were sketching out the differences over the course of the 19th century between the German and French schools of thought on cholera. I was wondering if you could uh, kind of sketch out what the German approach to cholera was and what the French uh, approach to uh, to cholera was. Well, uh, the the French approach is, is started earlier, actually. Um, it, 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 it comes from Louis Pasteur, who was really the, the first or one of the first uh, f- folks to uh, work with vaccination on any, he, and he worked on uh, uh, chicken. Ch- so you hear chicken cholera, uh, but he, he was uh, very good about his, his theory. Of course, he's, he's the guy who, who invented fermentation. So he likened it to fermentation and thought of it as a process that probably occurred in the ground between compounds, which would, which would activate it and accelerate it, um, like fermentation. Uh, so it's, it's activity with other compounds would, would, would get the cholera activated. Koch uh, in Germany, on the other hand, uh, really was was more of a laboratory citation, uh, a laboratory scientist who just looked at it under the micro microscope with new microscopes in the 1880s and was able to identify the the vibrio. Although you you had already had a fellow by the name of Filippo Piccini in the 50s who had uh, an Italian who had identified it. In fact, he he gets most of the credit now. But Cook believed that this vibrio could be isolated that. Um, that it was really just passed from people to people, whereas Pasteur had had uh, a an idea that it, it, it an, an environmental idea. Uh, he's not known for that. He's thought of as a bacteriologist, but he really had an environmental idea, which he got from from really the the, the, the reigning paradigm at the time. A fellow by the name of Eustace Liebig had had uh, looked at disease, and he thought that that it, it was a, a process diametrically opposed to life. Pasteur proved that that was not true and that it was vital components that, that were moving around. You know, there's no spontaneous generation. The, the, the things are alive. Um, and, and, and in the middle of these two, you have Liebig's uh, protege, Max von Pettenkoffer, who uh, come up with the formula X plus Y equals Z. You have X, which is um, a cholera and Y, so, some unknown substrate. Uh, and that it runs into a, an environmental effect, and then uh, Z, the, the the epidemic itself. So, but uh, the the difference is really the anti. Uh, if, if you believe Cook, if you believe it's always passed from humans, then you th- it can be isolated. It can be it can be quarantined. It can be kept out of a out of a location, uh, which I think is true. I mean, Evans wrote the book on on on. Uh, Death in Hamburg. Hamburg is a northern port, uh, pretty distant from India, and you 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 probably can isolate it up there. But it's much harder to isolate it in Russia, which faced so many threats. When you have the commerce coming from India to the west and up the Volga River, it has so many large rivers and passages. Isolating and 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 using quarantine to stop the vibrio in Russia becomes a much more uh, of a task and, and an almost impossible task, actually. So 
uh, tagging on to that, Dan, how, so is that primarily what for Russian uh, medical uh, researchers, that's what makes the French school of thought on cholera more appealing than the German? It does. It does. And, and of course, the, the French had a, a and, and the Russians had a connection also, right? I mean, they worked in the same laboratories. You had I.I. Mishnikov, who invented, uh, who was one of the founders of immunology, who also had this uh, fight with, with some of the Germans over immunology, uh, uh, mostly uh, Ehrlich, Paul Ehrlich. And and you, there's fights between these, you know, there's... Um, Academic fights between these schools of thought, uh, Pasteur and the Germans had no love for each other. So the Russians kind of sided with the the, uh, the the French. I mean, Pasteur brought a lot of Russians like N.F. Himalaya, uh, Meshnikov, and others from the Odessa school. They, they're all out of Odessa, which Meshnikov and a fellow by the name of I.U. Bardak started. And and they formed an alliance, and their their uh, thinking was very similar, and and this certainly profoundly influenced them, particularly in Russia, where cholera is, is clearly an, an an environmental disease. It, it it it's pervasive in the environment. So it, it it's it's interesting that they gravitated to the French school, which was the correct school of thought for them. It by you know for for a variety of reasons, and and the German school, which is is further north. And and just although they they actually did experience cholera in 1905, they actually had some some later outbreaks there. But they they uh, the idea was well, they just formed a land quarantine, which they did, and defeated cholera after 1892. And and the Russians didn't, so the Russians must be backwards. But this was not the case at all. The Russians had a much uh, greater and and more pervasive threat, uh, and and that's why. Something I was kind of following up on that, something I was quite curious about was as I was reading your, your book and you were talking about the the uh, influence of the French school of thought in Russia and the back and forth between the scientists and so on. And those those fights almost exactly mirror the political relation between Russia and France and Germany at the time, right? We had the uh, Russians and the Germans at odds over Pan-Slavism in Southeastern Europe and so on. Then, of course, the Franco-Russian alliance there in the uh, 1890s. So does that, like, do the, does the political relations between those three places, like, does that play any role in what scientific paradigm gets adopted in Russia? Or is that just kind of parallel developments I, I think I think they're 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 related, but not not strongly. But I, I I do think that that you're onto something there. I mean, I talk about the um, really the whole epic begins when you have the Tambora volcano and the surrender of Napoleon within a month of each other, and and it kind of so so there is that. Uh, uh, Richard Evans talks about that in his book. This competition in India between uh, the cooks and 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 the pastors, the French and and the Germans. And the Russians did see to just naturally side with the French, although they found themselves on the opposite side of the of, from the French in, during the uh, during the the, the war and in, in, uh, over the Crimea, the Crimean War. But I, yes, I think there's there's parallels there, but loose parallels, I, I would say. I mean, one more one more question on the uh, this kind of scientific paradigms at the time. Uh, um, you know, I, I thought often of Thomas Kuhn while while reading your your book, and 
I, something that occurred to me was to what extent do you think that these kind of predominant German versus French paradigms, do you think on the whole that those were beneficial uh, in trying to fight cholera in Russia? Or do you think that the fact that we have these schools of thought where people are at odds with one another, do you think that actually held the you know medical science back more than it, more than the opposite? Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I do, Aaron. That's a, that's an excellent question. I think it was beneficial in Russia. I think it it, it gave the the Russians the the presence of mind in in a day which which really was known for bacteriomania after Koch's discoveries. And all you have to do is 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 just get this microbe and keep it out of 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 a place and and by through quarantine and through um, uh, isolation of patients and you shouldn't have cholera. But fortunately for Russia, I think they they had Pasteur school as well. Although I think the Russians and they were very independent, but they they this naturally gravitated to Pasteur school, which was a more environment it was more in, amenable to environmental arguments and environmental analysis of cholera, which was the right thing to do in in, in Russia, in my opinion. I think I think they were very smart about this and and to withstand. I mean, because Koch was 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 a giant. You know, to, to withstand the German school and, and actually fight with them. You have Meshnikov fighting with them over um, immunization. You and you had uh, and and of course Pasteur was a great ally for them. And I think this was the right paradigm for them. I, I think in the end, I I believe that they were correct about this. Although the Germans were correct about it in their in their nation, which was you know a little bit different, a little bit different climate, a little bit different location, and a different problem. So I think it worked itself out. But it's amazing how how they fought over this without considering these things. But they they just didn't know um, about you know what we know today about cholera. So uh, that said, then we've kind of been doing some some background type uh, discussion here. Um, I mean, what, what are the different kinds of methods the Russians tried over the course of the 19th century to actually deal with cholera, right? We think we know about it theoretically. How do, how do they try to put that into practice? Well, they, they, they actually developed, well, a land quarantine, or, or I'm sorry, a, a, a system of, a flexible system of quarantine. They used quarantine. They believed in it. They just didn't think that they could keep it out of their country. So they were they they thought it was a good method. It was a way to wear it down. The Russians called it the Borba's Hilary, the 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 Hilary, the the struggle with cholera. To them, it was a struggle, it, it, and they view tend to view it in in um, in in Darwinian terms. We we have to wear it down. We have to defeat it, uh, and and they they actually. By the time of the 20th century, you had people like R. Uh, L. A. Tarasevich, uh, who was an absolute hero. It, 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 all these guys had trained with Pasteur and in Odessa, and they said, "Well, we just have to wear it down. It's it's actually dying on its own, and we have to help it die on its own. So we will fight it wherever it is. We will respond quickly, and they would respond. They would feed people in in areas that were under siege." By or you know where they suspected a cholera epidemic was going to happen, you 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 got one or two uh, cases and they were there and they were inoc or vaccinating or, or inoculating people uh, like crazy and they they were feeding everybody uh, they were giving everybody emergency water uh, boiled water and it was a reactive system. It actually goes back to the military, the Russian military in the, in the 1830s were very good at at um, at evacuation. 
and and then Pirogov experimented with this at, at Sevastopol during the Crimean War. Is how, what do you do with all these bodies? How do you get them out of here? They became very good at evacuation and, and this sort of thing. And then, of course, as you know, during the World War One, you had the un- Union of Zemsvas, the Union of Towns, the so-called Zem Gore, which uh, again become very good at evacuations. They really averted a disaster in 1915. In, in which they, they, they had a massive retreat, uh, as you know, from the Germans, really in, in, in danger of losing the entire war in 1915. And you had really very a very slight cholera epidemic in, in, in Moscow that year. Uh, part of that might have been because the famine was, was, was low, but they, they were very good at evacuation and, and, and they, they become very good at this sort of thing. And this, I think, had a an effect on how they, they reacted to cholera. We'll just drop back and we'll, and we'll you know, stop it where we can and, and drop back and respond to it where it is. They, they had no idea that you could go down to the border. They, they knew that wouldn't work, and, and, and I don't think it would have. I, I'm not sure it would even work today in, in Russia because you didn't have the, the fast communications. Although when communications sped up, uh, during the Soviet era, even when the Soviets started, uh, you, you started having the surveillance state, right, where they're opening people's mail. But they know more th- about what's going on. I mean, that's a, that's another issue altogether. But as communication increased, really the the, the um, fight with cholera and stopping it became more effective. And, and I think that had a lot to do with it, as did vaccination, which which clearly was shown to work. If if you could get into a place, you had six month protection against cholera if you vaccinated everybody. And usually that was enough to where it would pass. Also, the, just feeding people in the 1920s during the NEP. And this really resonated with Lenin. You had the Pirogov Society during the Tsarist area trying to to feed people. And the Tsarist saying, this is not in your bailiwick. Back off. You know, we, we have our statute. And, and they had some famine statutes that they tried to work uh, but during the Soviets, Lenin finally got to come to the mm-hmm. ideas, we need to raise the level of, of life for people. Be- for one reason, because they were real, in real danger of, of collapsing. And they raised the level of food. And, and they, of course, they have this, they, by this time, this system of response was perfected. And that's when cholera really disappeared in, in the Soviet Union. Although you did have an, an enormous outbreak in 1921 with the during the 1921 famine, which which lasted a couple years through 23 and 24. Uh, I want to kind of backpedal here for a second. Um, I'm guessing most of the listeners probably won't be familiar uh, with the Zemstvo reform. Uh, Could you elaborate on that and like what role the Zemstvos tended to play in, in fighting cholera specifically? That's an interesting question. I'll answer it as, as well as I can because it's, it's a tough question. The Zimsvas were, were local councils formed in the 1860s during the so-called Great Reforms after the Russians were defeated in the, in the Crimean War, which was a, considered a disaster in Russia that, that, to lose this war. They knew that they, they, they couldn't win with the slave army, and, and so they, they freed the serfs. And then they began to, to really remodel their government, and they did a, 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 an excellent job, I think. Of, of, of just, we've got to modernize. And one of the creations was the Zemstras, which were local councils of basically gentry and, and, and uh, muckety mucks. Uh, you even had a peasant council 
as you might recall. And and you had them at at the uh, the gubernial level, which was like the the state level. You had them at the at the local level. Um, and these and they were actually all the all the um, stakeholders, all usually the the, the big wigs, uh, to make decision. And you had um, for a time you had physicians on it. I think they later on they were they were kicked off of it for a while. But the Zinsvas were a good thing overall, I think, although they were controlled by the gentry, and this and this was a problem, particularly in rural areas. Now in Moscow. You had the union of Zemstvas in the union of towns, and you had physicians like um, F. F. Arisman, who was a uh, a, 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 a a Swiss uh, immig- immigrant, who was one of the finest physicians and really understood cholera and was very influential. had had superior powers of communication and could uh, really. Uh, form a relationship with these people that did not happen everywhere though moscow was was really uh it was exceptional and of course out in in some other areas although in saratov i think they had a pretty good zemstva and 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 really good uh communications but it was much harder uh to to get that type of cooperation but during the war it really came together uh during uh the, the 1915 and, and some of the battles from the front. It was a complete mess that they had, of course, but uh, I think they, they did an, an admirable job of, of evacuating and, and trying to save a lot of lives. They, they had an absolute nightmare on their hands. I, I think uh, it might have been your third chapter. Uh, you, you discussed an incident where, if I read you correctly, uh, it seemed like the state actually prevented famine relief because they were worried that the Zemstvo might get too much power. Did I, did I read that correctly? That's right, Aaron. Although they were, it was the Pirogov Society itself, which was a, the Pirogov Society formed back, you know, after the great reforms. N.I. Pirogov is, is really the hero of, of Russian and Soviet medicine. And they, um, they, they had this idea, and this idea developed as far as the great reforms and part of the idea of preventive medicine, which their whole system is based upon that our people are starving to death. It, it, they're, they're not dying of disease. You can't treat disease when people are starving to death. So they, they had to feed people and, and they actually developed this idea that we'll feed people, you know, to, to try to keep them healthy. And so you had this great famine in India, which goes up to from about 1897 to nine, 1900, one of the most horrible famines really ever in history. Uh, the, the, the so-called great famine, which in which there's some arguments by Mike Davis and others that this created the third world, uh, that, that um, the imperial powers were partly to blame here that uh, taken all the everything out. Anyway, you, you also it was also related, of course, to the El Nino and, and the weather events. So the Russians knew they knew that that cholera was coming. And, and and really, they weren't even thinking about cholera. They were just thinking about people eating. So you had the Pirogov Society going to places like Ekaterinoslav province, places which were traditionally at, at risk from famine and from cholera. And they're, they're feeding people, you know, every way they can. Uh, and, and actually, the cholera doesn't even enter Russia in any type of force at all until 1904, and it enters late. So the, I think that you, you look at that, and when they were told by the government to stand down, uh, and, and, and this actually was due to gentry interference and, and, and also government interference, I think. They didn't like these physicians getting too big for their bridges. Uh, they told them that's outside of your responsibilities. 
but I, I think that probably paid a, played a role. It certainly seems to because the just at about the time that these guys are told to stand down, then you have cholera in 1902. You have an, an epidemic at Ashra Khan in 1902 where several people died. In 1904, however, it comes back in, in pretty good force in Saratov, but it hit late, like in October. Uh, but it was a pretty good epidemic. But and, and the local populace did a pretty good job of responding. So, yes, uh, they didn't really get just slaughtered until 1907 and again in, in uh, uh, 1908 w- when you had the great St. Petersburg epidemic, which was uh, about equivalent to to uh, what happened in Hamburg in 1892, a, a really hardcore epidemic, about 7,000 p- p- cases, I think, at least. So uh, you made this uh, very interesting uh, argument, or I, I thought it was uh, it was quite uh, intriguing. Where you said that in the World One in the World War One era, you noticed that the same conditions that created the collapse of the monarchy also helped create further cholera epidemics. So uh, were you seeing this as kind of uh, you know cholera is sort of a metaphor for the health of the monarchy, or, or can you elaborate on on the parallels here? I, yeah, Aaron, absolutely. Thank you. I, I, I think so. I, I really do. You have cholera. Really, I, I know of no cholera epidemics that did not follow famine. Uh, the, every, just about everything I've ever looked at, if I looked hard enough, I found a famine. And famine certainly played a, a role in the fall of the monarchy. It, 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 we know that uh, it started the, the, the uh, February or uh, Mark Revolution, whatever you prefer to call it, began with with workers at the, at the Putilov factory. So it had to do with the war, of course. They're they're protesting the war, but they're also protesting taxes and this sort of thing. And 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 you know, uh, and you have the ladies out there, and you have the bread riots, right? And as as uh, one of our uh, professors, Doctor Furlow, said, when the ladies go out there and start looking for food for the families. There's real, there's real hell to pay. I mean, this is how the French Revolution started, and this is how the R- Russian Revolution started. So, absolutely, these are the same conditions that cause cholera. If people don't eat, um, you, you, you have all this breakdown of the of the crop system, and you have uh, the breakdown of the health. I, I think it's absolutely related to to um, to immunity. Uh, if, if, if you don't have immunity, uh, so, so it's, it's no, and then you start having these, these riots are, are demonstrations where people spread it around more, but it's, it's, it's already there. This idea that, that demonstrations cause cholera are incorrect in my opinion, but I think it is related. I think it is a symptom. It's something that they never really got off their back and had they gotten it off their back had had they fed their people better. Uh, who knows? They might have still been around. That's iffy history, but I, I, I think so. So cholera outlived them, and uh, the Soviets crushed it out pretty quickly. They, they they understood that you had to feed their people, and they had other issues. Obviously, uh, they may have even, you know, engaged in some forced starvation. They did uh, rec, rec, um, institute grain requisitioning, in which they took grain from people and. Uh, you know, in, in warfare, people are always starved out. I mean, I'm not, I'm not justifying it, but I think the Soviets were far more adept in dealing with this and far more ruthless in some ways. And then uh, when they thought that they were in danger of collapse and they, they started feeding people, and this didn't hurt them at all. 
So uh, you made a point in the book of arguing that uh, what the, uh, the the medical science as far as how to deal with cholera was actually quite similar in the from the czarist era to the Soviet era. So could you elaborate a little more on if that's the case? What did, what did the Soviets do better than the czarist government did uh, finally stamping cholera out? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, what, what they did better is, for one, they, they, they used all the same guys because it was the same people. It was, it's the same, the Odessa group and people. They, they understood that these, these guys knew how to deal with disease. They, and they let them do their job. I think that was the main reason. And that they actually took it serious. They, they, they had... The, the government took it serious. Lenin paid attention to this, where you had uh, Nicholas out at, at, at um, Zarsky Lasillo uh, not even paying attention to the revolution. Lenin had his hand on things, and he said, I, you know, I, I want to stamp this out. And, and he would, would ask, you know, is there a cholera epidemic going on? I mean, he, he paid attention and gave – he knew he had to listen to his physicians. He didn't particularly like his physicians very much. But he, he knew that he had to listen to them and, and that these guys could stop cholera, and they did. And when he started listening to them, to what they said, and, and, and they were given the power to, um, to do what they needed to do, then, then cholera was over very quickly. It was all the same people, um, Ilay Tarasevich, uh, Himalaya. They, they called all the same people out. Some of them didn't quite you know, pass over Zabalotnia, though, and, and – um, the, the, the Odessa school, the same school that had been studying this for, for decades, uh, now was empowered to stop it. And they picked the right people, actually, to, to do it. You did have people during the, the czarist period like um, uh, Vyazayev and others who were, were adherents of Cook. But they never gained much traction out there because uh, I, th- I think really because the other paradigm – was the right paradigm for fighting cholera in Russia. I, I really believe that. So uh, was the period, so you, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, you know, there's the grain acquisitions in the early 20s during the war communism period and so on. So is the period where, as you put it, uh, Lenin really starts to take cholera seriously and try to attack it, is that, that's, the, uh, that's the exact same period as NEP, right? It, 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 Aaron, absolutely. That's the, the 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 whole entire philosophy of the Prigorov Society, preventive medicine was was totally, um, it, it was totally compatible with the NEP, the, the new economic policy in which they you had to raise the level of the of the citizens. And when they did this, all the diseases really were, were they weren't wiped out, but uh, they all fell. You had. They had to do this because you had basically what was called the second time of troubles during 1918 through 21, where you had the largest typhus epidemic probably in history. You had cholera. I mean, cholera was the least of it. And you, you had the, um, the flu, you know, the flu, of course. Yes. So, I mean, it was it was like, uh, again, it was like one of these late Victorian Holocaust. And they were calling it the second time of troubles. And, and, and this is Lenin was was no dummy. He knew we really have to do something here. This, this is a real crisis. And, and that he instituted the new economic policy, limited private market, uh, brought back some capitalism. You know, he was a very pragmatic guy. Uh, he, he was not just a doctrinaire guy, 
but I mean, he, he knew if he didn't do this, they, they would collapse. And, and they were very close, I think, sometimes. But yes, and, and, and this preventive medicine, this whole idea, which had existed since the 1860s among the top physicians, was totally compatible with that. Yes. So, so would it be going too far then? I'm going to uh, see if I can stir something up here. The, uh, <laughs> would, uh, would it be going too far then to argue that the Soviet Union was able to stamp out disease to the extent that it compromised its own economic principles? And as far as, you know, like you, as you put it a second ago, uh, you know, letting some uh, capitalist uh, uh, profits accumulate during the NEP and so on. Absolutely. I think I think I don't know too many historians who do not believe that the NEP was probably one of the best periods that the Soviets ever had. Yeah. So and, and, and they did it by compromising their principles. Sure. They uh, you know, it was not communism for that. That's for sure. It was a mixed economy. And I think there's a lesson here probably for, for, for a lot of governments that to get caught up on any particular ism is, is not a good thing. I mean, use what works. Uh, but they definitely compromised for sure on uh, uh, their principles. And that is definitely what's what, part of what saved them from cholera and a lot of other diseases. It may have s- saved them uh, in general, actually. Yes. So uh, something, I think this was just because your your book ended where it did, but I'm really curious to know, given how you emphasize the importance of famine, both in the book and then here on, on the air as well, uh, did cholera come back during the Ukrainian famine? Well, that's a good, yeah, it, there was, there was, um, <laughs> there was cases of cholera in Central Asia in the early thirties. Um, I, it's interesting. I, I read once in one of the books that in 1927, cholera was liquidated, uh, but it wasn't clear if it, cholera was liquidated or if statistics related to cholera <laughs> was liquidated. Uh, no, there, there was, there was some uh, cholera in the thirties for sure. I would, cause I've been interested in that question myself and it did come back in the 1940s. Of course, at Stalingrad. I mean, I guess they can be, um, excused for that a little bit, but who did they call? They called MF Himalaya, a guy who had been battling cholera for 50 years to come to Stalingrad, a, a czarist physician, they, because the czarist physicians knew it better. I mean, they, they'd just been fighting it longer and they were familiar with it more. Can I, can I, uh, can I quote you on that in future, John, that they may have liquidated cholera or they may have liquidated cholera statistics? <laughs> <laughs> you you can absolutely quote me on that. Uh, I, I I really wasn't my, my my Russian wasn't quite good enough to. I'm not sure what it said, but it, I I really think it's it, they liquidated statistics. We know it came back again in the '60s, but it was mostly the El Tor, and and the El Tor hit um, hit hit. Um, and, and you don't hear a whole lot about cholera until Stalin dies. By the way, um, so I think the statistics were certainly liquidated during that era, but. Um, yeah, you, you, you get it again in 43. That, that's about the only time you hear about it. And then you start hearing about it, what, about seven years after cholera, uh, after Stalin dies in 1960, you had an, uh, an El Tor epidemic. And at the time of the, of the uh, interestingly enough, of the Lima, Peru earthquake, I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but it, I, I wouldn't be surprised. But, but they've wrestled with El Tor ever since. They even had some epidemics in the 90s. But these are not as... as uh, as explosive epidemics, they're not classical cholera epidemics. Which uh, let me tell you, the, the the disease in the 19th century, it's it would start out 
with a few cases and then it would just rise real rapidly. If you looked at it on a graph, it, it was almost a straight up um, and then sort of a, a, a peaking and then a falling off. And, th- and then they called it the long tail, the Delaney Holst, uh, in which uh, there's just a spattering of, 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 uh, of cases near the end. So uh, it looked like a big um, triangle with one side and what one side was just, it dropped off and then just sort of went out to the right. I, I would have to draw it, I guess. To, I, I probably didn't describe that very well. Yeah. So you, you, you brought up uh, uh, an interesting uh, argument here earlier when you mentioned that uh, they viewed it as a struggle, you know, and of course then during the Soviet union, lots of things become, you know, the, the struggle uh, and so on, even if we're rejecting, uh, you know, Darwin, Darwinian struggle. Uh, so, you know, I, not too long ago, I interviewed, um, uh, David Hoffman at Ohio State there, who you've worked with before. And his, uh, I don't know if you've read Hoffman's new book or not, uh, but uh, Hoffman argued in the in the book uh, that uh, that the, the fact that the Soviet Union was born uh, in context of the First World War and the Civil War, that that, that, that birth out of uh, a physical struggle uh, then really kind of characterized the USSR's entire existence. And when I read your book, I was wondering if uh, if we should add the struggle against cholera to those other conflicts that Hoffman was uh, was talking about. Uh, I don't know. Does that? I don't know if you've read Hoffman's book or not. But what, what do you think about that idea? I've not. But I. But I. I, I, I get, what are you saying? Is is that the the Soviet Union was born in this struggle and and that um i I, i'm not sure i understand the argument he's he's arguing that uh the 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 way the state operated as though it was kind of perpetually under siege all the time that that has its origins in the fact that it was born during states where it was under siege uh, you know in the in the first world war and uh uh in the the russian civil war there so i'm just wondering if when you kept talking about the the struggle there against cholera that sounded awfully similar to other official capital s struggles the state was engaged in throughout its uh, the existence of the the soviet union so i was just wondering if maybe we should we should see cholera as kind of it should take its place among all of those other struggles, like against the Kulaks or against uh, who, whoever the other uh, enemies might have been. Am I am I making sense here? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I totally agree with that. In fact, I've, I've just been teaching the Cold War uh, in my History One Hundred and Nine class, my American History course, and we were talking about George Kennan, who said that this, the Soviet philosophy needed to have a struggle. It, they have to have an enemy. It, it, it won't last unless it has an enemy and it, it'll just wilt away. So he was just saying kind of, you know, respond and, and, you know, to crises, but, but don't stir anything up. And, and it thrives on that. And I, and I think that's absolutely true. I think it was always like that. It was always a, a, a fight or a struggle and, and they, and they approach things like that. And sometimes they were very, successful because of that. And of course, we, we pretty much know that, that Stalin was, was gearing up and, uh, for World War III. So that, that makes a lot of sense to me. David Hoffman uh, is a very bright guy. I've talked to David a lot of times. And in fact, he, he kind of disabused me of the notion that um, I, I thought that during Stalin's era, 
that this broad approach to public health kind of died. And he disabused me of that and said, no, it, it really hung around. And he really knows that era, uh, era of, uh, especially about Stalin and, and, and during that era. So I, if, he, if he says it, I definitely believe it. And, and it makes sense to me. Perfect sense. So you uh, you raised another interesting issue uh, of the relationship between the idea of the new Soviet man uh, or woman, as the the case may be, and and public health, and and you kind of indicated in the book that you thought you saw some avenues for future research questions here. Is that something you could comment on? <laughs> That's actually what I was just talking about. Uh, it's interesting that you say that, but I thought. Uh, that the new Soviet person who can overcome basically anything, right, can overcome the environment. The that, that Stalin really didn't want to hear that the environment was that important. And I and I've seen him say these sort of things that well, really the environment can be overcome. You know, um, and 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 of course the new Soviet person can overcome it. Right, we can we can do anything we have to do. And this is where I thought that that the you know they went back to laboratory research and, and we can defeat this and we don't have to pay attention to the environment. But apparently, this broad approach to health um, did did survive through that era. And you, you see them in the '60s talk, still talking about we took very broad methodology in, in in trying to liquidate cholera, and they always use the word liquidation as well. But uh, I, 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 so I think it, it did last, but I, I do think that, that public health during Stalin's era, I, I, particularly on disease, I don't know if there's the archives or not, but uh, I think it would it'd be an interesting study. The war kind of just takes all, World War II just kind of obliterates everything, I think, and uh, on both sides in the 30s. And, and of course, the, the, um, the, the five-year plans in the 30s. Uh, but I think there, there is some room for, for research there, if you were able to find the right archives. What, what do you think uh, accounts for um, the fact that, like you said, during during the Stalin era, you thought that Soviet public health really kind of stayed the course and, you know, was, was pretty successful. Like, how do we square that with a phenomenon like Lysenkoism in Soviet biology, where you know, all of a sudden we, we argue that uh, you can inherit acquired characteristics because it would be really nice if the new Soviet man could do that. Like, how do we, uh, what, what makes public health different, uh, you, you think, where it's not quite as subject to, you know, ideological winds of the moment? Well, I, I think it was subject to it uh, to a degree, although I think the physicians, and, and, and they've, they've taken a, a bad rap that, you know, they just sort of follow the the the, the line, the, um, the the party line. I don't think they always did that. You had the the, the folks like Lysenko, who turns out to have had uh, some some ideas that which have found some resonance. You have a partial, a a very partial, um, uh, I guess, rehabilitation of him recently here. But in in some ways, according to some. Uh, and, and this is the, the, the so-called epigenetics, but I, I, you know, I, I, I think it, it did follow the party line, certainly who they chose. If they, they, they were not going to choose somebody if they, if they were telling them something they didn't want to hear. We, we know that. Uh, and, and, and that's where Lysenko was, was to guilt, guilty of, of even compromising his, 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 uh, the, 
his colleagues to where they, they would lose their life or something. Um, it's, 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 it's getting a little bit out of my area there of, of, of expertise, but uh, that, that was my idea that, well, this broad idea disappeared. And, and I believe David Hoffman, he, he, he um, when he says that it, it stuck around and, and I believe that you had physicians that would just say, look, that this is not true. I mean, they, that they would do the right thing. Of course, they, they were not the ones who moved up during that time. No, I, I wouldn't think so. Uh, what's, um, uh, we're kind of running, uh, about to the end of our, our time here. Um, what's, what's the status of cholera in the world say like right now? I mean, is this something that just periodically kills a few people here and there? Is it something that's really more or less gone the way of diseases like polio or where are we at on that? Oh, it's, 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 it's a scourge. It's an absolute scourge in Africa, in various places. Um, and, and again, I think part of this is the biology there. And part of it is, is probably people aren't eating right. And of course, in, in Yemen, where you had, uh, you, you don't have as many people dying, but you have over a million cases in Yemen. One of the biggest epidemics in history going on. And this is, uh, of course, political made, uh, where I think right. certain, uh, regimes are, are very much to blame but yeah it's a scourge and and it, and it remains a threat and absolutely you had you had a a really strong epidemic in 2010 in Haiti as well uh, and, oh and of, yeah and of course what happened was was that the the uh contagionist and the environmentalists started arguing but I think the environmentalists are are, are very correct that that cholera lives in these places. Although I also think that the contagionists are correct, that, that somebody is probably bringing in fresh microbes. So I, th- I think both things are going on. It's one of those issues where uh, both sides are right, but certainly cholera lives in these places and in a, in a, a rather um, uh, unfinished state. And then when it, it gets fresh microbes or it gets conditions in, in uh, the weather, I I think that's when it starts. It, it seems to me, I know of very few ep- epidemics that were completely isolated, although there were some. There were some, and, they, and they're generally small epidemics. But it, it, I do think that that it's it's both environmental, and, and of course, we know it's contagious. So I guess to the extent that famines are generally politically caused, then we could also you know, observe that to some extent, cholera epidemics are politically caused. Is that... Is that I, I, the, I, I have to agree with that. You know, I'm sure there's somebody that's going to say, well, you have epidemics when there were no famines. I, 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 I've not found any, but I'm not saying that there are none, but I absolutely, I think many cholera epidemics are politically caused. There's no question about it. Well, John, we're about out of time here. So uh, thank you for uh, talking to me about your book. That was quite an interesting uh, book to read. So thanks again. Well, thanks for having me, Aaron. I really appreciate it. It's good talking to you again. You bet. Uh, we'll see you later, John. Okay. Take care, Aaron. Thank okay, you. Bye. Bye.